Tonight, <clears throat> I'd like to continue talking about equanimity. And I thought this would be a good topic now that things are starting to shift a little bit here at the retreat center. We have many people who are leaving, some people who are staying, more people who are coming. You know those, those shifting tides I was talking about the other morning. And this could bring some stirring in the mind and in the body, some restlessness, some agitation for some people. So I thought talking about the practice of equanimity as a way to work with some of these mind states and responses might be helpful. I also wanted to talk about it as a continuation of the practice that was offered to you the other day by Guy, so that that can be rounded out, filled out a little bit more. And also because equanimity really has been one of the kind of important practices for me in my practice. I think I might have mentioned that once before. I, I think both the specific practice of the Brahma Vihara and really working with the phrases has been extremely helpful for me, but also the deeper understanding <clears throat> of what actually gives rise to equanimity and what interferes with true equanimity. So I just want to explore this a bit with you tonight. First, what is it? What is equanimity? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very big topic and very, um, it's a very has, it, can, it needs a very deep understanding to touch what it really, really is. It is one of the expressions of an awakened mind. It is a quality of the awakened mind. <coughs> and in this awakened mind, it reflects the stillness, the still, unmoving aspect of the awakened mind. And because of that stillness, it has a kind of mirror-like quality so that it can reflect back things just as they are, like a clear pool, clear reflection. So when the mind is that still, that unmoving, we feel that equanimity and it gives rise to the clarity and to the wisdom in connection with things just as they are. That still mind arises because the mind is not reacting. It's not caught in its usual habitual patterns of grasping and rejecting, holding on. And it's not a, it's not a diluted state. It's not a state where we're lost or confused. In that regard, we may say that it's a spacious balance of mind that is not in conflict with, not in conflict with. And we can, we can see in our own experience how often, <laughs> how often we find ourselves in conflict with our experience, moment to moment to moment. And so when we, so much of the practice, so much of the mindfulness is, is directed to just this, this watching, observing, knowing that movement of mind towards and against, for and against, liking, disliking. That's the movement of mind 
that obscures this revelation of the still, spacious mind. And equanimity, I think Guy probably talked about, is, plays a very important role in the uh, true expression of metta and compassion and joy. In the metta, with the, the equanimity, all, the, all of them work together. And with, when the equanimity joins the metta, this really allows us to wish for happiness with happiness for ourselves and others, without being lost in the desire and the attachment, without getting caught in the possessiveness of what I want for me in the relationship with this person or whatever. It's just, it, allow, it keeps us grounded so that we can feel and experience that pure wish for someone's happiness and well-being or my, my own. When the equanimity joins with the compassion, it allows us to face the immensity of the pain and the suffering, the misery in our own experience and the experience of the world without falling into the states of grief and sorrow, anger, pity. All those, those, it's those states that's so easy when we lose our balance to fall into. When the equanimity joins with the joy, with the mudita, it allows us to feel joy for others without falling into envy and jealousy. And so it really is the ground of each of these expressions, which really allows for the purity of that expression. And that means that the sense of the self, selfing, isn't caught up there. Because when the self comes in, and in a simple way, we might say when the self comes in, that's the reactivity right there. That's the grasping. That's the aversion. That's the, the way we, we disconnect, we fall asleep. That's what we call the, the self. Or in uh, Buddhism, it's referred to the problematic self. That, that aspect of our self that gives rise to the suffering or the discontent. And so even though we may, have an, we may express a quality of love or compassion or joy, we can see how easy that, that, that subtle and sometimes not so subtle reaction can get caught up and then again obscures the purity of that contact, of that connection with the person, the situation. Equanimity points us to a true refuge in our mind, in our heart, in this unmovingness, in this, this, this expression of stillness and inner quiet, it is a true refuge for us. It is a place we can rest, a place we can pause, a place we recharge, a place where we don't feel so lost and confused in ourselves, but we really can settle can let go, we can rest, and we're not in conflict with anything at all in that moment. And we've all experienced these moments when this arises. We've had a taste of this. There are many, many different dimensions of equanimity, and we can feel equanimity just when the mind releases and lets go, even for a moment. There's a quality of equanimity there because the mind's not in reaction. 
And it's in this, this, this connection with this refuge, this inner refuge, that really allows us to open to the conditions in our life with grace and with dignity, and really gives us a sense of being dignified as we go through our day. There's a, there's a, a quality that feels very, um, we might even say, I might even say mature. We feel a certain maturity in ourselves, in strength and groundedness, centeredness in this quality. There's a contemporary folktale that I like that, that kind of exemplifies this um, quality of not being lost, of, of being centered and grounded. It's called The Farmer and the Businessman. A, business, a businessman needing to attend a conference in a faraway city decided to travel on country roads rather than freeways so he could enjoy a relaxing journey. After some hours of traveling, he realized he was hopelessly lost. Seeing a farmer tending his field on the side of the road, he stopped to ask for directions. Can you tell me how far it is to Chicago, he asked the farmer. Well, I don't rightly know, the farmer replied. Well, can you tell me how far I am from New York, the businessman questioned again. Well, I don't rightly know, the farmer again replied. Well, can you at least tell me the quickest way to the main road, the exasperated businessman asked. No, I don't rightly know, the farmer answered again. Well, you really don't know very much at all, do you, blurted the impatient businessman. Nope, but I ain't lost either. <laughs> It's kind of like that, you know. <laughs> you know, you're right, you're at peace with the way things are there, you know? Calm, not so agitated. <laughs> so this obstacle, the obstacle is the reactivity of the grasping and the aversion. That's the far enemy of equanimity. It's the opposite of equanimity, where we get caught and there's all levels of that. Uh, reaction, of the grasping and the aversion. The essential kind of thought is, I don't want this to be happening. I don't want this to be happening. And that's that arising of the self. And it's felt as a constriction. We feel that tightening, that constriction in ourselves, which is unpleasant. And the more sensitive we start to become to that grasping, we actually can feel in a very subtle way that constriction and the unpleasant quality of that constriction. We not only feel it in our mind, but we also feel it in our body. We can actually feel it as a muscular contraction when we become very sensitive. The, the whole, the, 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 the torso, the muscles, the arms, the throat, the, the blood vessels, we just start to constrict even a little bit when that, that uh, grasping is in the mind. And this takes the characteristic of demanding and controlling and fixing and rescuing in our experience. I had a, I had just a, a couple months ago, I was teaching uh, the Labor Day retreat at Spirit Rock and kind of an interesting ha thing happened where we had about 85 people who had come together in the meditation hall for 
just a short retreat, five-day retreat. And um, a lot of people are relatively new on the Labor Day retreat because they, you know, tasting this five-day retreat. And so the first morning, the, the first morning sit, after the, the night we, we opened the retreat, the next morning, at that morning sit before the instructions, there was this crow that was cawing, not just outside the meditation hall, a little bit further away, but it was loud enough that you could hear it just keep cawing and cawing. You know crows or ravens, you know the, the big blackbirds, they, they can make a pretty raspy kind of strong sound. And it went on for a half an hour. It was just cawing and cawing and cawing. And I was, it was very interesting for me because here, you know, all these people had just come to Spirit Rock for the meditation retreat. And I was, you know, really wanting people to have the, the quiet and the stillness for, you know, the, the experience for their retreat. And this crow was so noisy. And I could see my, in my mind how I didn't like it. I wanted the crow to stop. How long is it going to be going on? Can't, it's really people are going to get so agitated and restless. Of course, I'm getting you know, more <laughs> agitated and restless. But I was just watching my mind respond to this crow. And it was very interesting because fortunately, there's a fairly good degree of mindfulness. And I was able just to see all those impulses keep arising in my mind. And I humbly will tell you that at one point, the image of even finding a rock, you know, and throwing it at <laughs> the crow, but just my mind, you know, would just keep throwing, you know, keep throwing out all these images and these, these uh, ideas. And, and I would just sit there, you know, I was just sitting there watching and, and experiencing this response and really seeing how much I wanted people to have a good experience. <laughs> and somehow this wasn't going to be a good experience. You know, somehow how my mind was constructing that. And just, you know, just seeing it. And the interesting thing is, I mean, it, it, it's, it, I'm not sure it stopped. Um, and, you know, of course, there was a point where I did think the bird must be in distress and there must be something happening and, you know, moment of compassion and then, you know, but stop, you know. But um, fortunately, I have since heard the same kind of cawing and rasping sound and, and, and I know the bird was not in distress when that was going on, so that gave me some comfort. But it's so interesting to see that even with a mindfulness and a fair amount of stillness, the impulses are still going to arise. But the difference is we're not following. I didn't get up. I didn't go down the road. I didn't, you know, try to stop the bird, you know, which is what often what we find ourselves getting caught in. But to be able to sit, to just sit, this is our practice, to be able to not follow the impulses, but to take time to consider with wisdom and with clarity what is the appropriate response, what is the right action in this circumstance. And it's a small example, but it's an example of how often those impulses and those drives, the desire, the didn't get to attachment, didn't, didn't attach itself, but that, that the that uh, the force of desire just arising in the mind so strongly. 
But the equanimity is that the, the, one of the quality of mind that can bring a, so, a certain kind of grounding, centeredness, uh, uh, a stillness, so that we're able to sit and recognize what's happening in the mind, in the body, without having to follow it through. But when desire to change things and to hold on is present in the mind, it is difficult to sit a lot of the times. We feel the restlessness, we feel the agitation, and it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to simply be present with the unpleasant feeling in the mind and in the body. And usually, if, there, if there's not much uh, wisdom in the mind, the thought will arise or the belief will arise, if I can change the situation, then I can change my unpleasant feeling. I could do something to make myself feel more comfortable, more pleasant. And so in that example with the, with the crow, you know, if I... <laughs> did follow my impulses, it really would have been, it would have been all about me. It would have been all about me so that I didn't have to keep sitting with my own agitation and restlessness. So that I could actually change the situation so that I could come to a more, a more relaxed and balanced place in myself. And this is why we often externalize our problems. We put the problem out there because it seems like we can change what's going on out there easier than we can change what's happening here because we often don't have that wisdom to know how to work with our own experience. So we, the first thing we might do is blame other people for what's happening or make them wrong. It's your fault. You need to change your behavior. You need to be different than you are. And if you change and you're different than you are, then I'll feel better, right? I'll feel happier because then you're giving me what I want and you're not creating a conflict or difficulty for me. So then I can rest. I can feel more at ease. This can so easily be missed, though, because that habit of blame, that habit of judgment can happen so quickly, that reaction where we place the problem outside of ourselves. There was a yogi once who, on one of our retreats, who in response to this kind of reflection was talking about how uh, for a long time he had really desired to get a dog. And, and so finally he followed that desire, he followed that impulse, he got himself a puppy. And he was so happy right you know have the puppy have the companionship so cute so lovable until the puppy started acting like a puppy <laughs> right chewing things you know peeing in the wrong places you know running around you know not really taking commands and started to create some agitation and upset for this person and he would saying god i, I got a bad puppy <laughs> no why didn't I get the puppy I wanted to get, you know? And it's that kind of thing. We, you know, if we would have got the one we wanted or the, the person would be the way we wanted, things would be all right. But yet every, everything, dogs, people, have their own nature, have their own expression. That's how it's going to be. And so 
we can come into our own experience and start to take more responsibility, accountability for our own responses, our own reactions. Another way we externalize the problem is when in the, not just blaming or judging, but if we actually find the situation too difficult to deal with and we find ourselves falling into some grief or some sorrow and we start to feel that place where it's not okay that this is happening. It's not okay that my body is getting sick or that person is leaving me or um, my car is breaking down or or I don't have money, I mean, whatever it is, it's not okay that this is happening. And if I could just change the situation, and then from that agitation and that restlessness and that uh, fear, we get out and try to fix it and make it better and take responsibility. Not that there isn't a place to take action from wisdom and connection, but again, looking at what's really motivating us, what's feeding us, is there fear? Is there agitation, aversion in the mind as we're acting? Because then the self is present again, this self that thinks it needs, I need to take responsibility to fix this situation. And we've lost connection with a deeper wisdom, a deeper clarity. That's when we shoulder the responsibility. You see that, that expression, I have to shoulder this responsibility. We take that burden on our shoulders and there's some potent, there can be some disconnect there. Again, the contraction, the constriction. Or if we really go into the helplessness and feel the despair, we might even just get frozen or numb or depressed or lost. And again, not really being so helpful, not being connected to ourselves or the situation. So being able to stay connected to what's happening in our experience in a clear way, in a wise way. Another strategy that happens that interferes with equanimity is withdrawal, where we just say, okay, I'm out of here. I'm not dealing with this. You know, we actually, it's a kind of, there has aversion in it, but it has, it's kind of an indifference. We become indifferent to what's happening. It's another way of uh, disengaging, uh, shutting down, cutting off. And indifference is actually the near enemy to equanimity because it can look like equanimity. It can look like, oh, I'm balanced, I'm calm, this isn't bothering me, but we've actually just <laughs> checked out. We don't really want to have anything to do with it. And there can be fear. There's some fear of engagement, fear of getting too close to the person or the situation. And we're not really seeing clearly what's happening in the mind and the body there. So this question how can I be fully engaged with my experience without falling into a kind of denial, without rejecting my experience and what's here in the moment? Or how can I be fully engaged with my experience without getting pulled into it and overwhelmed by what's going on? And these are the two extremes that we can find ourselves in, either in the suppression or the denial where we cut off from ourselves or from another person. We don't want to know what's going on. We pretend nothing is happening. 
or we go so much into the experience that we get lost and flooded, confused, overwhelmed, indulge in it. And so it's really learning. The equanimity is what helps us to find a balance between these two extremes so that we don't get caught in the suppression and we don't get caught in the indulgence. How do I face the pleasant experience without attachment and indulgence? How do I face the unpleasant experience without drowning in sorrow, despair, aversion? And how do I stay with the neutral feeling, the neutral experience, without slipping off into delusion, into fantasies, into memories, boredom? It takes a discriminating awareness. It takes the cultivation of this mindful attention so that we can actually notice the feeling the feeling tone, the Vedana, pleasant feeling is here, pleasant experience is here, and noticing our response to that. Noticing when there's unpleasant feeling, unpleasant Vedana, and noticing if there's the rejection of that. Noticing when there's a neutrality, when there's not much going on, and how easy it is just to get lost, or to disappear, or to become bored and then think something needs to happen reject that, fill it up with something. So this is part of our practice. And then when we're involved in this and we see our reactions, of course, not to add more reactivity on top of that, to see if we can simply see our experience in a very simple way, in a bare way, as much as possible without taking all this so personally. Isn't that, (laughs) how do we do that? How do we pay attention and take care with our experience without taking it all so personally? It just is what it is. Things are as they are. This is the way we can practice equanimity. Again, by reflecting that this beautiful equanim- this equanimity phrase, things are as they are. Such a simple phrase to help us come back right into the present moment. I want to tell you about an experience that I had where I had a wonderful opportunity to um, practice equanimity. And it was really a, an experience where it was one of my deepest inquiries into equanimity because I was on a, um, a four-day vision quest. And uh, this was some years ago in the wilds of England. That's a joke because England's not, <laughs> England's not very wild. It's a pretty dense country for those of you who know England. <clears throat> spent a lot of time there. But there are some places you can go and uh, get away from the crowds and uh, went all out onto the moor uh, the Dartmoor, which is one of these very, very open uh, landscapes, um, very ancient. There's a lot of ancient stones on this moor. And this uh, friend and about five of us, well, the friend was the Vision Quest leader, and we went out. Uh, he took us out for this quest, and it was the first time I'd had ever done a Vision Quest. 
I thought England was a good place to start rather than the mountains of Colorado or, you know, where there are tigers and lions and snakes. And <laughs> England is pretty benign. <laughs> so on this uh, uh, vision quest, it's uh, four nights and we return on the fifth morning. And we go out, you know, as maybe some of you know, you go out uh, alone and find your spot where you're going to do the vision quest. And uh, for these four days, there, we take no food and no water and just a, a sleeping bag and uh, some gear for, to keep the, the body warm. And uh, there was a, a little stream near where, where I stayed so I could pump some water, so I could have some water while I was out there. And it was, uh, I knew it was going to be challenging, but the difficulty is that as England does, it rained. <laughs> and it started raining as I was walking out there and it kept raining. It didn't really let up. So the rain just kept going and going. And it was pretty um, heavy rain. And so on my way out, as I was walking out with my tarp, my tarp and my sleeping bag, my boots already got completely waterlogged. So that was right at, right at the beginning. Fortunately, it wasn't cold enough to, to be worried about hypothermia or anything. It was just warm enough, so right on the edge there. So um, found my uh, place under a, a tree where I could put my tarp and uh, do my, my vision quest. And not that the tree kept the rain from, from coming down. And I you know, started doing my, my practice there. On the third day, I was definitely wavering, started to feel sick, you know, from lack of food. Uh, I was cold. And the primary thing I did to keep myself somewhat balanced was walking meditation. I mean, what else are you going to do out there? There's nothing else to do. Sit on a rock, you know, meditate and do walking meditation. There's nothing else to do. Fortunately, I had my practice. So I do my walking practice back and forth, and I would just feel sick, and I would feel nauseous, and cold, and wet, and you know, hours and days you know, of this. So it was not so pleasant, a you know, lot of unpleasant, and a lot of questioning whether I was actually going to be able to make it to the fifth morning. So I started inquiring into equanimity. It really became interesting to me to find out what would it really mean to be equanimous in a situation where I was so, uh, and so much discomfort and so, so much, uh, had so much unpleasant experience happening, like moment after moment, maybe a couple hours of where the sun came out, it was like, oh, thank you. But then, you know, started raining again. And so I just, I was, I wanted to make it through and I wanted to be more equanimous than I was actually feeling. So I really started doing my walking meditation, asking what would it really mean in this situation to be equanimous? Would it mean that I would get to a place where I would no longer feel the discomfort? Would it mean that I would actually start to feel good, that I would be happy, that I would start to feel pleasant experiences in my body and my mind while I'm wet and cold and sick and, you know, wanting to throw up and, you know, hungry and no, I mean, what did it really mean? 
And it didn't mean that if I was really equanimous, if I re really was in an evolved state, that I wouldn't be even feeling any of these feelings. I could somehow transcend it all and just sort of erase the conditions. I would get into, maybe I could get into some kind of void state, you know, some kind of place where I would just feel nothing, some kind of protective place where I would be uh, protected from any impact, any impingement of, of the conditions that were rising and passing in the moment. Was that what equanimity was? And I would just keep walking back and forth and back, back and forth. And as I was doing that, I saw that, of course, in that situation, I wasn't going to be, you know, come getting into some kind of state where everything would be void and erased because I was alive. I was still awake in my human body with my mind and my body and my feelings. And so what was it? And I realized that what it was truly was a deep and profound acceptance of the way things were. If I wasn't in conflict with the conditions, if I wasn't fighting with, if I was allowing the situation to be as it is and connected and present with myself right in the midst of it, that this was, this was drawing me closer to equanimity, to a place of balance, to a place of non-reactivity, this place of acceptance. And I really let myself drop into that acceptance, into the allowing, into the non-fighting, into the non-conflictual relationship with the way things are. And I could see how my mind started to free up. It doesn't, didn't mean that I started to feel pleasant <laughs> feelings in the midst of that experience, but it meant I could feel what was happening in my body. I could feel what was happening in my mind. And from there, I could actually make a clear and wise decision about how I needed to proceed. Because in situations like that, it can actually start becoming a somewhat dangerous situation. And so it's even more important to connect and be present and be engaged with what's happening. And so all of this started to become clear to me that this is how I contact the appropriate response, how I know whether I'm supposed to be staying out there another day when I'm sick and wet and cold and hungry and, not, and getting weaker, and, 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 and then being able to respond to the situation. And so what happened is in recognizing my own particular capacity for being out there that I, one of the guidelines of the quest was that if you really find yourself getting in trouble, you come in. You come into base camp. And the base, and you could come in, it doesn't mean you're breaking your quest. It just means that you come in and you go into a tent and they give you some food, give you some soup or something, and then you finish your quest in the tent. So that's what I did on the fourth afternoon, uh, or I think it was the fourth evening. I just didn't make it quite to the next morning at the, through that fourth night. And I remember when I came in and they just 
didn't speak to me. He didn't speak to me and his partner. And they just, I went into the tent and they brought me this bowl of miso soup with a couple of little tofu chunks in it and gave me a blanket. I put it around my shoulders and I was in nirvana. <laughs> I touched what <laughs> I think the deepest place of nirvana. <laughs> Just that, a little bowl of warm soup and a blanket and a tent. <laughs> My mind was just radiant and bright and calm and at peace. And it was so interesting in a way, you know, it was so relative in that respect, but that I took care. It was the right decision. It was the right choice. And being that connected allowed for that response rather than, you know, a lot of other poss possible outcomes could have happened. So this was such an informing experience for me. It's, it was, it, I think it took me to one of the deepest explorations of in, our, in my life, in the world, when I'm not in an altered state of consciousness, transcending my mind and body, but to actually be in, in, in life, engaged with life. What does it mean to be present, to be accepting, to be allowing, to not be in conflict with? And so the more that I can just feel the bare experience of the feeling itself, the feeling tone, the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the neutral feeling, and then noticing my response to this, this is what allows me to know what's happening. What is actually happening that makes this experience so hard for me to be present with? And this is one of the questions that I ask myself a lot now. It's really a, a, a guiding question for me. When I notice that it's hard for myself to connect or stay present, my mind slips off and I'm in some kind of conflict, just asking myself, what is it that makes this experience so hard to be present for? What's happening that my mind can't bear it, that my my consciousness isn't able to stay present for. And, and that allows me to lean in a little bit more, just to lean in a little bit more. And it might be that I don't have the capacity to bear it, and so then I can pull back. But at least I am doing some exploration rather than just in reaction, just in that reaction. Certainly as I go in, to these very challenging and unpleasant places in myself, I am going to feel vulnerable. I am going to feel tender. And depending how much I really allow myself to be present in those difficult or more challenging places, I may feel very vulnerable. I may feel very raw or exposed. I might even feel like I have no skin. It's so tender being in those places. But can I, can I bear it? And is there wisdom arising? Is there wisdom there that's, that's informing me, that's bringing some understanding to what this is all about? We don't do with this kind of exploration unless there's wisdom guiding that, that exploration. 
Sumedho, Ajahn Sumedho, once said that life is like standing under a rushing waterfall. Can we find balance? Can we find balance? Today, every morning, I read the New York Times and I, <clears throat> on, the, on the computer, and it was an interesting fact I came across this morning when I read that 1.02 billion people in the world are hungry, according to a report from the United Nations. That means one in seven people, one in seven people on this earth are hungry. We don't have enough food. Despite all of our efforts to grow food and to feed people, it's not working. And so what happens? Can I let that in? Can you let that in? You know, we've been eating so well. We've been eating this incredibly nourishing, abundant food all this, this time here. I've appreciated it because I, I get fed. You know, I don't have to go to the market and, and feed myself, cook and feed myself. And, and all the love and the care that goes into the feeding and then reading this, it's how to let that in, you know? 1.02 billion people on this planet. When we let it in, when we allow the contact with that truth, with that reality, there is the possibility for compassion to arise in the heart. There's the possibility, if I'm not denying or suppressing that truth, or if I'm not then indulging and, and getting involved in this uh, kind of uh, agitated and restless and uh, selfing way, oh, I need to fix it, I need to do something, what's gonna, ha what's gonna happen? But just take that breath, let it in, let it touch, and touch the heart, and see what happens, see what kind of response arises from there from a calm place, from a, a balanced place, from a, a place where that, that, that fact can perhaps touch a deeper wisdom within our being so that maybe there is some way that I want to respond, but not from aversion or grasping. When I was in India, I told you I spent a, a lot of time in India, and there was one experience that um, has also made quite an imp imprint for me. I went to Bodhgaya, where the Buddha was enlightened, uh, for about 15 winters in a row. I had the wonderful opportunity to be able to teach a retreat there um, at the Thai temple every winter with Christopher Titmus, And we would lead a three-week retreat there for all the many of the Western travelers who would come through India. It was one of the few places where people could do a Vipassana insight retreat there uh, in our tradition. And outside the gate of the Thai temple, there was a chai shop, or I think was, because I'm not sure that it's still there anymore. The, the, um, uh, the, the guards have come through Bodh Gaya and kind of cleared out a lot of the, the shacks of the um, uh, the peasants who were working along the side of the road to sort of make it nice for the tourists. 
So there was um, this one chai shop that was outside of our Thai temple, and every year we would go and we'd sit with the, the man, Ram, who, was, who ran the chai shop. And, and over the years, his son, who was young, when we first came, when I first came, about five years old, he started to grow. Each year he was growing, and he would work at the, the chai shop with his father. And, you know, all they did was just sell a couple rupee shot chai with a couple of little sweets at the shop. The shop was a shack, you know, like a, just a little table and a, 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 an awning. And so his little son was growing up, and over the years he would learn some English. And so we could communicate with him a little bit more. And when he was uh, 15, I remember this one time I sat down with him, and I was just asking him, Sanjay his name was, like, a little bit about what, any way we could communicate, just like, what do you eat? You know, what do you have for breakfast? And, and he said, well, you know, for breakfast we have um, chapati, and just a little piece of bread and some, some tea with no milk. And then what do you have for lunch? You know, just, just um, a little rice and maybe a, a little vegetable. And what about dinner? Oh, just a chapati, you know, that was it. You know, and, and sometimes they were able to get yogurt um, or maybe a little milk for the, for the tea, but not, not so often. It was a real luxury for, that, for them. And I could see the way they lived. I went to, over to their village once and went to their house. And, you know, very, very simple, very, very poor. And here I was, you know, this American, you know, who has everything, you know, everything, very privileged. And I would often sit with Sanjay and Ram, and I would just feel like, why? Why is it like that? You know, why, why do I have all this privilege? Why do I have all this abundance and this health? How come they don't have it? And I could, I could remember this sense of wonder and just mystery. I couldn't understand. I couldn't figure it out. Why is it like this? Why me? Why me? And I can notice at times, you know, falling into some, you know, guilt or you know, shouldn't be like this. And of course, doing whatever I could, uh, offering support and help for them in any way that I could. But you can see that the, the guilt doesn't help anything. You know, it's just one of those things we can't understand. You know, we spoke, uh, Joseph spoke about karma last night. We have, you know, a wonderful uh, explanation for many of the, the, the that, 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 um, that law of karma and cause and effect, but doesn't answer all the questions. You know, why? So sometimes we just sit, sit in the truth, sit in the reality of why things are the way they are. And that phrase, no matter how much I would like things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Things are as they are. And trusting that whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a natural law. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a natural law. And this equanimity, you know, this is where I would practice the phrases and use the phrases, may I accept things the way they are, which would help me come into a place of more balance in my mind, 
my heart, and then I could touch the compassion. Then I could touch the care and that place of generosity that wanted to help, that wanted to serve in any way that I could for this family. So another question that I lead with in my practice, that I ask myself in my practice, do conditions need to change for me to feel deep peace? Do conditions need to change for me to know deep peace in my own mind, in my heart? Or is there a possibility of touching something within my being just with things the way they are, with things just the way they are. Rio Khan, this wonderful quote from him where he says, Oh, that my priest's robe was wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Oh, that my priest's robe was wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. And from this place, we can just maybe open, not be in conflict with. And it doesn't mean that we don't act. It doesn't mean we don't respond, but it means that it's much more likely that we can respond in a wise way, in a compassionate way, because we all have access to a very profound innate wisdom, to a very deep uh, possibility of compassion and love in our own heart. Every one of us, every being who walks this earth, how can we access that? How can we tap into that? What we might call our Buddha nature or the deepest nature of our being. This equanimity gives me strength not to fall into the immensity of the pain. This equanimity allows me to stay present and connected with myself so I don't tumble into grief, anger. Uh, this equanimity gives me patience a kind of patient acceptance, and a patient acceptance that says, I accept this because it's happening. I accept this because it's happening. That's it. What else can we do? We can be in conflict. We can fight. We can argue. We can struggle. Does it help? Does it do any good? I accept this because it's happening. Byron Katie, this wonderful teacher, says, reality is the highest order. This moment, reality, is the highest order. And this equanimity gives me firm ground to stand on within my own being. Someone asked a teacher once, what's the sign of an awakened being? And he said, an appropriate response. Just that an appropriate response. So this equanimity has many dimensions, many levels. It is our path of practice, but it is also the expression of the awakened mind, and it is the fruition of the path. 
It is the expression of Nibbana, this place of deep peace, deep stillness, the unmovingness of the awakened mind. But we need to start where we are, because if we want that now, <laughs> we're back into the constriction, we're back into the grasping. So all we can do is start where we are. I love the image of the onion, because we can peel back the layers. And that's what we do with the practice of equanimity. We have to just peel back one layer of our reactivity. We can't get through all of it and just be done. We wish we could. No more reaction arising. So we have to just peel back the reaction that is arising, whether it's the reaction to the reaction or the reaction to the reaction to the reaction or the reaction to the reaction to the reaction to the reaction. <laughs> we just start where we can. We start in the most outer layer. And when we do that, we are more equanimous than we were. We get closer to the equanimous mind. Whether it's judgment or criticism or fear, whatever it is, we interrupt that activity at the place where we can. This is what makes space for our wisdom to come through. And it is also, that in itself is an expression of our wisdom. So this is one kind of angle, one expression of working with equanimity in our practice. And I want to end with this quote that's just been sitting on my table. I feel like it's been sitting there for a couple weeks and I keep reading it. And I know it's there for a reason, and so I thought I'd bring it tonight and just read it to you, and hopefully it fits in. Um, it's from a book called Women of the Way by Sally Teasdale. And um, she, in this book, uh, wrote about many uh, women in uh, the Zen tradition and their awakening. Oftentimes, we don't hear so many stories of women in their awakening. And so this is a quote from the story of uh, Tejitsu in that book. She saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Let's sit for a moment. Then she knew there was nothing, no more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. 
and she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.